I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. We're looking at verses 42 through to 50 this morning. So Mark 9, let me read for us. Verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. The salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that this passage is heavy. And I pray, Lord, that by your Spirit, you would give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to receive this heavy truth. That we would not take this warning lightly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the arguments that's often thrown at um, Christians by atheists or secular people is, is often the argument, you know, you believe in God and, and Christianity not because it's true, but because it's comforting. It makes you feel good. Often, they will say things like people who are religious or devoted to God, they're, they're religious because it's, it's soothing to them. It, it makes them feel better about themselves. And I remember one time being in a conversation with such a man, and he brought up that argument to me, and he, he said, you know, you, you only believe in God because it's comforting to you, but the truth of the matter is there's no God. Now, the, the assumption in that argument is that those who are committed to truth and reason will conclude that there's no God. Whereas those who are looking for comfort, looking to feel better about themselves, will believe there's a God despite the evidence. Now, little to his surprise, I turned the argument on him. And I said, you don't believe in God because it's comforting to you. It's comforting to believe that when you die, you will not have to give an account to a holy, righteous God for the decisions you have made. It's way more comforting to believe in non-existence after you die than to believe there's an eternal judge that you will give an account to. See, when Hitler committed suicide, 
Do you think it was more comforting to Hitler to believe that after he died, he would simply experience non-existence or that he would stand before a holy God and give an account for the crimes he committed against humanity? Which is more comforting? See, those who tend to make that kind of argument most likely haven't read much of the Bible. Because there's a lot in the Bible that is not comforting. And definitely the passage here in Mark 9, 42 to 50. There might not be more terrifying words in all of human literature than the words that Jesus expresses here in these verses. Meek and mild Jesus. See, these words are shocking. They're alarming. These words are meant to startle us. They're meant to unsettle us. They're they're meant to warn us. They're meant to make us feel uncomfortable. They're meant to to make us realize that life and death are far more serious than we often realize. They're meant to make us realize that our conduct has eternal consequences. Not only for our own lives, but also for the lives of the little ones that Jesus makes reference to. And what's even more shocking is that these words are not given to sinful unbelievers. There there are several places in the scripture where, where there are warnings to unbelievers about the coming judgment of God and their need to repent and embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior. They are, they're, they're all over the Bible. And I, and I plead with you this morning that if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, I plead with you, know and understand this, that the Bible warns that there is a coming day where God will judge the world in righteousness. And those who are not right with him will be judged and will face his holy, righteous indignation. But that's not what this passage is about. See, if you look at this passage, if you look at the context of this passage, these words from Jesus are actually a warning to people who are in some form spiritual leaders in his kingdom. He's talking to his 12. He's talking to the 12 disciples who will actually be the apostles of the church of Jesus Christ. They will be the main leaders in God's kingdom. Remember, this is an ongoing conversation from verse 33 to 50 that Jesus is having with his disciples because of their wrong thinking and their sinful behavior. In verse 33 to 37, the disciples had been arguing about who is the greatest. They were consumed with the sin of ambition. And then in verse 38 to 40, they they now think they're the gatekeepers of who can be doing mighty works in Jesus' name. And so immediately before these words, here in verses 42 to 50, you have the disciples arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom of God. Then you have them thinking that they're the gatekeepers to who can be in the kingdom and serve in the kingdom. And now after hearing Jesus' alarming words, they're probably wondering whether or not they'll even be included in the kingdom of God. See, Jesus is giving an alarming warning to spiritual leaders in his kingdom. 
And I don't think this solely applies to the apostles or to preachers or to pastors. It definitely includes them, but I, but I think it's more expansive than just them. I think Jesus is speaking of anyone who has some kind of spiritual influence and authority. Fathers and moms, mentors, deacons and elders, theologians, Christian authors, mature Christians who have influence in other Christians' lives, whether that be three people or 5,000 people. And some of us might not be spiritual leaders right now, but we might be in the future, and therefore we need to heed these words. Now here's the reality. Often when preachers preach a passage like this, they'll be faithful to the text, but often they'll lighten it in some way. Or they'll, they'll want to make sure that their members leave here feeling comfort rather than discomfort. But I don't think that should be the goal. See, I think we are meant to feel exactly what the disciples would have felt when they heard this from Jesus. Which means, I think, that each of us should be leaving here this morning feeling a little uncomfortable. That we would examine our lives to see that we are truly walking in the truth. And so the first point for this morning is this. Don't be the reason or cause for one of Jesus' little ones to fall away or else beware. That's what he says in verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. See, Jesus alludes to the fact that there are two major consequences to sin here in verse 42. The first is, our sin can be the cause for Jesus' little ones to fall away from him. That word sin there in verse 42, in the Greek, it carries with it the idea of stumble and fall away. In other words, we can, by our sinful actions, cause Jesus' little ones who believe in him to fall away from him. Now, if that doesn't alarm you, I don't know what will. When Jesus speaks of little ones here, he's, he's not just referring to children. He's referring to those who believe in him, who would probably be newer Christians, probably a little more vulnerable and weaker Christians. It definitely includes children who believe in him. There, there's a reason why he takes a child in the midst of them and talks about receiving such a child. But here's the point. Our sins have consequences, not just for ourselves, but for Jesus' little ones. I, as the pastor of this church, have the potential to be the cause for some of you to fall away from Jesus because of my sinful actions. What kinds of sin is Jesus referring to that can be the cause of his little ones being harmed? Well, the immediate context would inform us that Jesus is referring to two things in particular. The, one, the sin of selfish ambition, right? 
The disciples are all about being the greatest. The sin of self-glory and self-exaltation. How many religious leaders have, have used God's word and twisted God's word in order to achieve vain glory and in so doing have destroyed many lives, have led many of Jesus' little ones astray? Or how about worse, how many men have there been who have faithfully preached God's word but with the motive for vain glory and have led his little ones astray? But the immediate context also tells us that he's not only referring to selfish ambition, but also the sin of censoriousness. That is, the inclination to judge others severely, to be hypercritical, always fault-finding, always on the lookout to condemn any kind of falsehood. I think that's what Jesus is alluding to in verses 38 to 40. The disciples are being critical of a man casting out demons in Jesus' name because this man doesn't follow them. They think they're the gatekeepers to Christ's kingdom. And there are a lot of Christian leaders who think that their primary responsibility is to go after everyone who remotely might undermine Christian orthodoxy. They think their job above all other things is to defend the truth against all error, even if it means being offensive and arrogant while they do it. And don't get me wrong, there are times where we need to defend the truth, where there are wolves seeking to devour God's sheep. But there are some men who tend to see a wolf behind every tree. That should never be where a pastor or Christian leader spends all their energy and effort. I don't want to be known as a pastor who is constantly attacking other men or women over their wrong beliefs and practices. And I'll tell you why. Because it harms the little ones. These kind of men think they're defending Jesus and the truth, but they're actually harming the little ones. Why? Because they turn people off when there's, with their severe judgments and critical spirits. It's as though if if you're not fighting someone, then you're not doing your job as a Christian. But listen, Jesus doesn't always need us to defend him. He's a lion, for goodness sakes. He will deal with those who misrepresent him. And I know that the best thing I can do as a pastor for Jesus' little ones is to love Jesus with my whole being and to faithfully proclaim God's word to the sheep that he has entrusted to me. And every so often, I might need to take out a few wolves. But you know, it's not only the sin of selfish ambition and censoriousness that harms Jesus' little ones. I mean, that's the immediate context, but it's definitely more than that. How many young Christians have fallen away because they found out their pastor, who they loved, was a fraud? And while he preached the word of God to them week in and week out, it was discovered that he had several adulterous relationships with no repentance. Or how many children have fallen away because their dad at church wasn't the same dad at home? The sin of hypocrisy. Parents, do you feel the weight that your unchecked, unrepentant sin can have devastating, eternal consequences for your children. 
I have a little girl who's eight months old. And it terrifies me to think that my sin has the potential to cause my little one to want nothing to do with Jesus. And so the first consequence to our sin, according to verse 42, is that we can cause, we can be the cause of Jesus' little ones to fall away. And that's why the New Testament focuses so much on character for people who are especially in forms of Christian leadership. But there's also a second consequence according to verse 42. And that second consequence is this. There is horrific judgment for those who would live a life that would harm Jesus' little ones. It would be better, he says, for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. It would be better for me to have a millstone tied around my neck and be thrown into the sea than to cause Jesus' little ones to sin. Which implies that there's something worse than having a millstone tied around your neck and being thrown into the sea. Right? It would be better. That means there's something more severe, more horrifying than being cast into the bottom of the sea. And there is no doubt, based upon the following verses, that Jesus is referring to eternal judgment, by which sinners will face the holy, just, righteous, pure wrath of Almighty God in hell. This should make us tremble. Not only can our sin lead to Jesus' little ones to fall away, so our sin that harms Jesus' little ones can lead to our own damnation. Do you feel those words? There's also something important that I think we need to see here in regards to the nature of God's love. See, one of the big objections to God, at least to the God of Christianity, is how can you believe in a God who claims to be love, yet eternally punishes people? And that's a legitimate question. But I think this verse helps us understand that a God of infinite love is reconcilable with a God who justly punishes sinners in hell. See, who is the object of God's love in verse 42? It's the little ones who believe in him, his children. They're the object of his love. Who is the object of God's wrath in verse 42? It's those who harm God's little ones. Which means, because God infinitely loves something, it means that he will also infinitely hate something that would harm the very thing he loves. You see, God hates falsehood. Why? Because God loves truth. If you love truth, your natural inclination then will be to hate falsehood. God hates evil. Why? Because he loves goodness. If you love human beings, it means you will hate murder. If you love life, then you'll hate death. 
See, Romans 12.9 assumes this to be true about the nature of love. In Romans 12.9, the Apostle Paul exhorts the believers, let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. And then, I think what he does in Romans 12.9, after following, after, uh, following verse 9, is he begins to unpack all the ways in which love is genuine. So he says this, let love be genuine. What's the first thing he says about love being genuine? abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. So in order for love to be genuine in our lives, the first thing we must do is actually hate that which is evil and cling to that which is good. You see, God being a God of love doesn't undermine him being a God of judgment, but it actually upholds. A God who did not punish evil wouldn't be a God of love, but a God of indifference. And brothers and sisters, Jesus is telling us here, live in such a way as followers of Jesus that you would not harm one of Christ's little ones. Or else, beware. Second point, be vigilant in killing sin in your own life. That's what Jesus alludes to in verses 43 to 48. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. See, in verse 42, the focus was concern for hindering Christ's little ones. And here, the focus is dealing with your own sin so that you won't face judgment. But it's still connected Because the more vigilant you are in dealing with your own sin, the better off Christ's little ones will be. You see, Jesus here in these verses is using hyperbolic language. He's not suggesting that we literally cut off our hand or pluck out our eye. Because Jesus knows that doing either of those things won't actually keep you from sinning because sinning is a matter of the heart. You can cut off your hand and you're still going to sin. But he's using hyperbolic language to convey the extreme measures that one should go to in putting to death sin in light of the eternal consequences involved. You see, your commitment to killing sin in your life or your lack of commitment will determine to some degree whether you enter life, that is the kingdom of God, Jesus makes a parallel between life and the kingdom of God, or whether you will enter death, that is hell. And no, I'm not here speaking of works righteousness, that somehow if you pluck out your eye or or you cut off your hand, that's the way to find favor with God. That's not what I'm suggesting. What I am suggesting, though, is this. That someone who has truly believed upon Jesus, who has truly been saved by the mercy of God, he will be devoted to killing sin in his or her life. 
You see, Jesus is conveying the seriousness and weightiness of making peace with sin in your life. And so he takes three different parts of the body and tells us what to do with them if they cause us to sin. He uses the hand, the foot, and the eye, and in each case he argues that it's better for you to rid yourself of those parts, amputation, and to enter life, the kingdom of God, than to enter hell having those parts intact. And notice that four times he uses the language, it is better. Right? Verse 42, it would be better. Verse 43, it is better. Verse 45, it is better. Verse 47, it is better. It would be better for you and I to be maimed and enter life than to face the horrors of hell, which Jesus describes as an unquenchable fire where the worm does not die, which is a reference to the last verse in Isaiah 66, verse 24. See, these metaphors that Jesus, is use, Jesus uses for hell, like weeping and gnashing of teeth or utter darkness or unquenchable fire, they're meant to capture a horrific reality. And he's using these powerful images to give us reason to not want to go there. Now, I realize some of you might say, Peter, this is fear-mongering. You're trying to scare us into obedience to Jesus. Yes, I am. There's a reason to be afraid. Let me give you this illustration. Let's say all of us, the Alfredos decided to pay for all of us to go to Cuba on vacation with them. And we're on the beautiful beaches in Cuba, though they're not as beautiful as the Philippines. But let's say we're on the beaches in Cuba, and I'm an expert in tsunamiology. All right? Tsunamis. I know that's not a word, but... And I notice that a tsunami's coming. And I start to tell you, friends, a tsunami is coming. Get off the beach. What am I doing there? I'm trying to scare you. I'm trying to warn you that there is a tsunami coming down at you at over a thousand kilometers an hour. And if you don't get off this beach, you're done. Now, there are several motives, reasons to leave the beach. I would say there are more noble reasons, higher reasons, like, for example, you love your family and you want to get back home and be with your family because you know they love you. The other noble reason is you, you love to live. You, you, you love life and so you want to keep living and so, so that's a noble reason. Or, or you want to see your friends or you have a good job or, or whatever it may be. But there's also another reason, another motive that might not be as noble, but it's a legitimate reason. That is this. You're terrified for your life. And so you flee the beach because a tsunami is coming. The Bible gives several reasons for why we ought to believe and follow Jesus. The highest of all is this. He is simply worthy of it. But one of the reasons we are called to follow or flee to Jesus is because he is the only one who can rescue us from the holy wrath of God. And there is a legitimate reason to run to the one who can save you from that tsunami. But here's the main point. 
A disciple of Jesus understands the weightiness of their sin and is vigilant and determined by the Spirit of God to never make peace with sin in their life, but to wage war against it. To take extreme measures, to do whatever is necessary in order for you to do away with sin and live a life of holiness. See, a disciple of Jesus will spend his life or her life in going to war against their own sin. There is an all-out offensive attack against anything and everything that would hinder the glory of Jesus in your life or hinder those who are little ones in your life. You see, brothers and sisters, there's a violent mean streak to Christianity. A violence not against others, but towards the sinful self. You see, this is not the language of comfort but an all-out hostility and rage toward anything that has the potential to damn your soul. And notice that Jesus doesn't say, cut the hand off of another man, or tear out the eye of your brother. In other words, our first duty is to be vigilant in killing our own sin and not the sin of others. It's your own sin that will condemn you and not another man's sin. You know, I look at the internet and I see what's happening in our own society and I wonder, if a, I really wonder this, if a lot of professing Christians give so much of their time and energy to condemning the sin of others that if they truly, that if they truly take the time to kill and condemn their own sin. Listen, Donald Trump's sin will not send you to hell. Joe Biden's sin will not send you to hell. Justin Trudeau's sin will not send you to hell. It's your own sin that will send you to hell. And I'm not suggesting that we not be engaged and have opinions and be informed. I'm not suggesting that we don't be active in standing against evil and injustice. In fact, we need to stand against evil and injustice. But, but... Do you have the same vitriol and hostility towards your own sin that you do for others? Does your own sin enrage you as the sin of public figures do? Do you invest the same amount of time in killing your own sin that you do in condemning and calling out the sin of others? You know, if we'd be as hostile towards our own sin as we are often towards unorthodoxy or false doctrine, we'd probably be a lot holier than we are. And I'm not saying we don't care about right doctrine, but the focus in this text is how you live. Will you be devoted to killing sin in your own life in order that you enter life and not hell? And not cause the little ones to fall away. See a true disciple of Jesus. Will sin. We all do. We will all continue to struggle with sin. On this side of the grave. But a true disciple of Jesus. Will never make peace. With sin. Every day we wake up. Brothers and sisters. And there is a war before us. We're called to kill anything in our lives that would devalue the glory of Jesus and the well-being 
of others. As John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be vigilant in killing sin in your life. Thirdly, while you are killing sin in your life, know that God is committed to purifying you through fire. Therefore, have salt in yourselves. And that's what I think Jesus is speaking, out, speaking about in verse 49 to 50. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. See, we have a responsibility to wage war against sin in our lives, but God has not abandoned us to this task. He's also waging war against sin in our lives. That's what I think is being conveyed in verse 49, where he says, everyone will be salted with fire. What is Jesus talking about? Well, most scholars think that Jesus is using imagery from temple practices to convey his point. In the Old Testament, sacrifices would be offered in the temple and the sacrifices would be burned and they would be salted. And the idea here is that were the sacrifice that will be salted with fire not to destroy us, but to purify us. As William Lane states, the disciples must be seasoned with salt like the sacrifice. This will take place through fiery trials through which God will purge away everything contrary to his will. Salt typifies that quality which is the distinctive mark of the disciple, the loss of which will make him worthless. You see, we have a responsibility to be killing sin in our lives, but God in his commitment to us as his children, will also burn away the sin in our lives. And friends, all burning hurts. Even burning that is meant to purify. See, in order for us to be used in his kingdom for good and not to harm the little ones, God will allow us to experience forms of affliction in order to purge away anything that would keep you from becoming more like Jesus and would keep you from harming his little ones. Therefore, brothers and sisters, do not despise the discipline of the Lord. Or as Romans 5, 3-5 says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Or James 1, 2-4, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith, who's the one who tests? It's God. He's the one who tests our faith. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Remember King David's words in Psalm 119, verse 67? Before I was afflicted, I went astray. 
It was before my suffering that I wandered away from God, but then I went through affliction, and he says, but now I keep your word. See, it's through affliction that we often learn holiness and obedience. As you're putting sin to death in your life, God is providentially, through fire, purging sin from your life. He's committed to making sure his disciples are holy as he is holy. And this is why Jesus ends with the exhortation, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Salt was used as a preserver in the ancient world. It preserved food. In other words, Jesus is saying, live in such a way that you preserve life rather than bring death. Sin in our lives brings death around us. It harms those we love. It harms those we care about. But holiness brings life, joy, and peace. So live in such a way that that goodness, joy, truth, happiness, peace are present, rather than evil and misery and hostility and falsehood. Which is why I think he ends with, and be at peace with one another. You see, if we as Christians are always fighting amongst ourselves, how will we ever be the salt that God intended for us to be? Isn't it interesting that this whole conversation began with the disciples arguing about who is the greatest? And the conversation now ends with Jesus telling them to be at peace with one another. See, friends, our being at peace with one another impacts whether or not we are the salt of the world. And maybe we're not arguing about who's the greatest. Maybe we're arguing about other things that could damage our saltiness and our peace. And I simply ask this. Is that thing that we're arguing about, is it worth it to lose our saltiness and the peace we have with one another in Jesus? Is it worth it? And I don't know what that is, but it could be several different things. But Jesus says, brothers and sisters, be at peace with one another. Be salt, have salt in yourselves. See, brothers and sisters, we have a war to wage, but know that God is also waging a war. He is committed to purifying you through fire. Therefore, have salt in yourselves, beloved. Let's pray. Almighty God, I simply ask that you would help us to feel the weightiness of these words and that by your spirit we would be all the more vigilant in pursuing lives of holiness for the glory of Christ and for the good of Jesus' little ones. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.